0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, who is—I don't know—are you technically on vacation? Like, if you filed the proper paperwork for a PTO day today, Ed, my podcasting partner Ed Condon, who may or may not be technically on vacation.
1: Uh, I don't think I can claim to be on vacation. I'm—I'm I'm in my office recording the show. So no, I don't.
0: I don't think so. I mean,
1: um, if this is vacation, then then even by my <laughs> admittedly disordered standards, this is not great.
0: But you have been on vacation. You were. You I did. Were. I took a few
1: days off this week, and I said last week when we recorded the show that I was absolutely going on vacation, and I I did that. I took, um, I think I took three and a half full working days off.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty good.
1: Um, and yeah, I mean, by my standards, I look. I only took two days off for. Paternity leave when
0: You could have taken child, more so. days off this week I kind of urged you to um, I, it was, You didn't so much
1: urge me to As demand that I do And uh, I didn't
0: Well I I just um, It's been quiet around here yeah.
1: <laughs> Listen I know I I went a whole week without hearing from you When you went camping up a mountain Back I in know, July I that's why I felt and,
0: bad that I contacted you once or twice But everything I contacted you about I thought you'd be interested in
1: And you were right I was very interested about it And no I mean I understand why um, I'm going to try and find a way of saying this, which, which doesn't convey anything other than what I, what I want to convey. Um, I am aware that me not being in the office for a week can be as much of a break for other people <laughs> as it could be for me. I and, and I want cover. to be sensitive to that. And I, and I would, I I am aware sometimes people would like me to sit in a corner and take a breath for a little while. And I get that, and I'm I'm working
0: harder on getting better at that. Speaking of check out this transition because it's really truly a thing of beauty. Speaking of taking a break uh, in a rural location or a remote location for three and a half days, the Pontiff uh, has made his way today. we're recording this podcast on September the 1st, and the Pontiff has made his way today to uh, to the endless step to Mongolia itself and uh, and to the capital of Mongolia. Ulaanbaatar. Uh, Pope Francis is in Mongolia for a very strange—I mean, a very unusual trip. Mongolia is a giant country. I mean, it's the size of Alaska, which is pretty big, all things being equal. Uh, But it's home to like fewer than fourteen hundred Catholics, and it has this sort of interesting, longstanding history of Christianity existing uh, in—you know—within its territory. But um, it has never been obviously a Christian country. But uh but off the Pope off the Pope has gone to uh to the um mission su of Mongolia.
1: I have questions about this. You who have been at work in the
0: last week and I
1: have not. Uh what's up with this? Because I know that I, I remember when the Pope announced he was going to Mongolia and I was kind of like, that's an that's an eccentric choice by the Roman pontiff,
0: but you know, good for him, I guess.
1: Filling well, I think some... there are
0: two things happening here, very honestly. One is um I think this is meant to be uh, a demonstration of the Pope's solidarity with people who live on the existential peripheries and people, Christians who live in, in a minority position in their countries. Um, you know, the Pope last year made the um, the prefect of Ulaanbaatar, Bishop Giorgio Marengo, a cardinal. And I think most people took that as a sign of the Pope's commitment to the existential peripheries and et cetera. Of course, Bishop Giorgio Marengo is not. Um, Mongolian himself. No, um, that'd be ridiculous. He's Italian. I mean, he's Italian, but still the pope, there's commitment to the peripheries, but I mean by periphery <laughs> right, he exactly. mean like Perugia. Right, know. exactly. But still the pope um the pope did this thing. The, the pope made uh Bishop Marengo a, a cardinal last year and I think that was meant to represent, you know, his his solidarity with this country, but it's a really kind of cool trip because, you know, um Mongolia is probably one of the places where Christianity is sort of least established. Um or one of the smallest sort of statistical presences in a country, there are um, 25 priests in the diocese, which is coterminous with the country. Six of them are incarnated there, so there are 19 religious, but six actually secular diocesan priests in the prefecture of Ulaanbaatar, which I find super interesting, and six seminarians for the diocese. There are parishes and Catholic schools and... um, Question. Yes.
1: Are those six seminarians Mongolian?
0: In as much as I understand it, yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah, that's quite cool, right? Yeah. And actually, if you think about it, imagine a place where you, so there are six diocesan priests and six seminarians. Imagine any other place in the world where the number of seminarians is equivalent to the number of priests incarnated in a diocese. It's,
1: well, I was going to say, I, I mean, my mental arithmetic is terrible, but six diocesan priests, six seminarians, 1,300 Catholics. Right. Show me a diocese that has that kind of ratio in this country. Yeah,
0: that's right. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so there's something, you know, there's something to, we're going to talk about this later, because we're, we're going to do something today Ed, that we've been doing lately, although last time we tried it, we had, you know, technical difficulties. We're going to spend a decent part of this show talking about something every, everybody's talking about, the Pope. Mongolia, some papal comments connected to that, and then the second half of the show, we're going to talk about something that nobody's talking about, uh, which we'll get to. But um, I had uh, an interesting conversation, and this is kind of pointing in the direction of what we're going to talk about. I had an interesting conversation on Sunday in Washington D.C. with Cardinal Anders Arborelius, who, as you know, is one of my one of the members of my C9. And um, yes, he I and was a I, good
1: pick. He was the one I envied most when you. We and
0: I had this conversation because Cardinal Arborelius, the Bishop of Stockholm, was invited to come to DC to give a lecture at Catholic University of America. And his communications director reached out to me and said that he was going to be in the US and would I want to interview him. And I was very, very grateful to do that. I didn't I didn't broach the topic of him being in my C9. I we didn't get there. I thought about it, but I'd have to explain. You know, so many steps. I have this podcast, and on the podcast, we did a fantasy draft of the C nine. Are you, you suggesting
1: like, he didn't know walking into that meeting?
0: I well, that all depends on staff work. But the part that I really felt badly about is he was my number five pick. And how'd you like to tell a guy you were in, you were, you know, not in the top half of my draft order for my fantasy C nine? Uh, I I hear you.
1: I don't want to revisit the entire politics of that draft fun as it was um, because we could talk about it for hours. But again, I I don't think it's right to say that where you featured on the list necessarily corresponds yeah, to how true, high a priority. because there's prior so much gamesmanship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, there's, you know, I think the the five hole, I'd call that the anchor of the roster. Really. You're, you're effectively bad in cleanup.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. At any rate, Uh, The point I wanted to make is one of the things that I talked about with Cardinal Arborelius is is the experience of living as 11 in a very, as a very small Catholic minority. So Catholics are fewer than 2% of of the population in Sweden, and there are almost no ethnic Swedish Catholics. So like practically everyone who belongs to the Catholic Church in Sweden is um, an immigrant either from uh, Poland or Eastern Europe or from... The Middle East, or from Africa, or to my great surprise, from Latin America, that there are a growing number of Latin American immigrants to Sweden, um, and uh, and so when ethnic Swedes convert to Catholicism, they effectively have to have this experience of um, integrating into uh, a church which does not share their culture in their own country, which is unusual. And then, of course, they sort of move away from some elements of Swedish culture by virtue of becoming Catholic as well. So. Um, the one saunas fewer saunas, you know the other thing I didn't ask him about, and I really regret this is I wanted to ask him, okay, I went to Sweden when I was twenty. did you I didn't yeah. know this about you? Uh, I went to Sweden when I was twenty i well I went to I went to um Denmark when I was twenty, and when I was in Denmark, I found out that it was a very cheap boat ride to go to Sweden, so I took the very cheap boat ride to Sweden and I stayed in this cool um train like that had been converted into a hostel. And I had this, I, I can't believe I never told you about my experience at a Swedish casino. We're we're telling that story now. No, that's for another day and another time and more and, and something stronger than the coffee I'm drinking now. But I, suffice it to say, I've been to Sweden. And when I was in Sweden, uh, I um, I ate in a restaurant. And after I ate in the restaurant, I paid my bill and I stood up and I walked through the service doors and I walked into the kitchen and I found a guy in a white jacket and a toque and I took a picture with him so that I could go home and tell people that I met a Swedish chef. And um, <laughs> he, of course, had no idea what I was doing. And because he had no idea what I was doing, his reaction was um, to express bewilderment in Swedish, which is exactly what I had hoped would happen. Because when he expressed bewilderment in Swedish, Ed, what he did said he his move his hands? Like. <laughs> yes, he moved his hands and he put down his spoon and he said, smorgasbord, smorgasbord, smorgasbord. Smorgas. So I I mean, it was a very complete experience for me. Um and, uh, you know, as you know, when we were youth, there was no such thing as social media. So no. uh, there was no means of sharing this with other people. Uh, but uh, but, but it was a very cool experience, which I which I hold in my own memory, if nothing else. The point is, I didn't ask his eminence about Swedish chefs, and I should have. Um, but what I did ask him about is about the experience of being, uh, in effectively, a religious minority, a significant, you know, a very, very small religious minority. And he said something which I suppose shouldn't surprise us, but he said that that can be a profoundly um, strengthening experience, that his experience of the church in Sweden is that people really want the faith undiluted and uncut, um, because if they're going to be Catholic and have the experience of sort of being unlike anyone else, they, they really want to know it and have it become a core part of their actual identity. And I suspect that's much the same in a place like Mongolia.
1: I I says okay. Hang on. Are we talking about Mongolia or are we talking about Sweden? Because I
0: I'd like to talk about both. Um, and I well, have questions for you. Talking, I, I suppose, about being a religious minority. Later okay. on, I want to talk about. Later on, I want to talk about the kind of interesting conversation I had with Cardinal Arborelli about ecumenism. But um, but for now, we can talk about other parts of the Sweden conversation. That's totally fine.
1: Oh, okay. Because that's that was going to ask you. Because I didn't. I mean, I, you had one of the things you told me. Um, sort of over the weekend as you said I'm you were gonna do a quick flying visit because you had a chance to sit down with the cardinal, and uh and that was great. And then I, you know, I read the interview when you published it. That was the first I saw of it. I noticed that it was actually a, a three hander, that it was you talking to him, sort of, you know, knowing him, knowing you, while also knowing a bishop, a lady bishop, no less, of the Church of Sweden. And so I was gonna I was gonna say Uh, I wanted to talk about that a little bit and, you know, how that, how that all went down and where ecumenism fits into what you were just talking about, about people who, you know, when Catholicism is such a a tiny minority, people tend to want the real thing, the whole thing, nothing but full fat, unadulterated Catholicism. And how does that play in the sort of, you know, receptive ecumenism that
0: I know you guys are talking about, but okay, we can talk about that later. We'll talk about the ecumenism side of it later, because right now we're talking about the Pope in Mongolia. And uh, the only point that I was trying What's to What's he make, gonna do in Mongolia? Like, yeah, g- great question. What he's gonna do in Mongolia is um today he has thus far visited the president of Mongolia. As he one gave, does. He gave a talk to the diplomatic corps. Um he is uh, oh tomorrow, excuse me. He'll give a talk. Right now he's sort of just checking in. Um he will uh, hopefully he gets to ride a horse. You know, Mongolia is famous for its horses.
1: Well, I was going to say, apart from you know, like, uh, uh, and I, I mean, I'm being some, somewhat sincere here about Mongolian culture. what you know it for is they've got the cool tents, they've got the cool gear, but it's, I mean, it's an entire culture organized around
0: horses. horses. Yeah,
1: like the as you say, the endless
0: step that that is the horse is the center of traditional Mongolian culture. So, And actually I wonder, 30% of Mongolia's population remains nomadic or semi-nomadic. I mean, right. horse culture is still, a, is still a big part of Mongolian identity. So,
1: I mean, I hope His Holiness is going to get one of the cool coats and like
0: go for a ride. I, well, I hope he's going to get one of the cool coats. The guy's 84 and he just traveled around the, the world. Um, I, I'm not sure that getting on a, Fast Mongolian horse is a great idea, very honestly. I don't know. You can come all that way. I suppose. Um, But what he's going to do, apart from the horse thing, is uh, tomorrow he's going to have a little ceremony. He's going to see the president. He's going to have his usual meetings with like, you know, civil servants and then bishops and priests and missionaries, which is going to be a very small meeting. I mean, you know, that's going to be 50 people, basically, uh, effectively or something like that. Then he'll have an ecumenical meeting, he'll offer mass, uh, he'll meet people at a kind of Catholic charity center, and then he's out of there. So it's a very, very quick trip. Wow, that is a, it's a long way to go for a flying visit. Yeah, it's um, a long way to go for a flying visit, but I suspect the Pope will, and if he if he's not planning to, I hope he'll make it a goal. I suspect the Pope could easily shake the hand of every Mongolian Catholic.
1: Uh, he probably could. Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, at 1,300 people, that wouldn't take... More than a couple, it wouldn't take two an two insane hours. amount of time. No, I wouldn't
0: take an insane amount of time. Yeah, okay. So, um, so we were talking about what it's about. I think on the one hand, it's about um, exhibiting this commitment to the existential peripheries and to the fact that the church is universal and all these things that the pope really wants to exhibit. But I think there might be another thing going on, Ed, about the pope's visit to Mongolia. If you visit Mongolia, upon oh, by the way, we haven't talked about Mongolian grills, but we don't have to either. Um, if you visit mongolia upon whose door are you effectively knocking uh well both china and russia yeah you are conspicuously Front door of china, back door of russia I suppose. yeah you are conspicuously close to two countries with whom the pope seems to desire um a, a more positive relationship and in both cases for whom the pope has been significantly stymied over the past year is that fair uh it would be fair to say that
1: Pope Francis has made it known he would respond positively to an invitation to either Beijing or Moscow and no such invitation has been forthcoming and he's cons- uh, I he's hadn't in a considered country, that, a large that country
0: conspicuously between them now I mean do you think there's meant to be some symbolic value there that you you you, uh, you think about these things
1: no i hadn't thought about it that way i mean i instinctively i would have thought if you want to nettle the chinese and say it's cool when the Pope comes to town. You you don't want to be left out of this particular party. I'd have done into sort of Asian swing and go to Vietnam. Maybe go yeah um, Vietnam, which you know Seoul. they they have had some I, actual diplomatic success. The
0: Pope with. has also announced that he's bringing a big event to Seoul, hasn't he?
1: He is. The next World Youth Day is going the to be in South world Korea, Day which is, is you know, until, so very heavily. Well, I mean, by the circumstance, by the standards of um, you know the modern world, of, of a heavily Catholic country and place where the Church is relatively
0: growing and growing relatively quickly. But it's also on Um, the front door of which country? uh, It's also on the front door of North Korea. Yeah. But I mean, it's also very close to which other country. Oh, also close to China. Here's a land border. Yeah. So, I mean, it's also close to China, right? So, I mean, it seems to me the Pope is making the Pope who has been not shy about a desire for um, more, you know, a better relationship with Beijing is like not shy about these, these conspicuous visits to places that Beijing can't help but notice.
1: Well, that could be it. I mean, if that's what he's if that's what he's doing, it'll be interesting to see if it yields fruit. Uh talk
0: about how that might be perceived in Beijing and what what the sort of state of affairs is right now for the Church and the Holy See and what we're waiting on next.
1: Uh well, gosh, I, I suppose the most succinct way of putting it is the Vatican China deal is a bloody mess and um is why they acknowledged even by the Vatican Secretary of State at this point to be a farce. And China is has effectively nationalized the church has effectively nationalized not just episcopal appointments but the the structuring of dioceses um you know we're we're in one of those awkward areas where any clear clear-eyed um assessment of the situation would say the chinese church is or certainly sections of the chinese church are in schism um that you'd have to i mean there's no other way to describe bishops that have for example abandoned their sees to take up auxiliary positions in dioceses that the holy see doesn't recognize as existing um so you know we we have all of those problems uh at the same time the chinese government keeps saying no 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 we're happy to keep talking to the holy see i mean they they they're clear they don't see a, a role for the pope or the holy see in the appointment of bishops or in the you know governance of the church in china um, but at the same time, the Vatican doesn't want to completely cut off um, the church in China and sort of go back to the days of, well, there's either a state church or you're an underground Catholic who the government is more or less actively hunting. So um, it, it's in a mess there. And I know that there has been a school of thought in the Vatican Secretary of State and it is a school of thought that I've often heard ascribed to Pope Francis personally, which is that the Pope really wants an invitation to Beijing. He really wants a big papal visit because the thinking is um, the Pope, in a sense, has to be seen to be believed and that having a kind of large outdoor mass event uh, in in China or having the Pope tour the country, even in the kind of controlled, very carefully stage managed way in which he would have to in China, that this would somehow have to cut through the, the sort of barrier to information and communication between the Pope and the Church in China which so often exists whether that is through um, you know diplomatic back channels normally or whether it's cut off by you know interceptions by the Chinese government or just the cloud of cultural um, difference and distinction and fear and suspicion that often exists between um, the 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 Chinese officials and and dealing with Western governments and things like that. So all of that. And there's a the sense that, you know, if only the Pope could get to China, that somehow this would create a sort of spark, a sort of big bang moment for for the church in China to re-energize, revitalize, and also give the church there a kind of momentum that the government couldn't contain or control. That you know the church in China labors under all of these restrictions. You can't bring children to church. You know it's you can't bring minors into houses of worship in China. It's you know sort of ridiculous um, restrictions and things like that. But somehow that you know having Francis there saying well, you can't stop families from turning up to see the Pope, it just wouldn't be manageable, right? Um, and I think there is some some logic to that school of thought. And I think the the logic to that school of thought is borne out by the fact that the Chinese government seem in no way interested in having the Pope come to town because I think they kind of think yeah we couldn't control him he'd be an agent of chaos behind the Great Firewall and we don't we don't want that we don't need the Pope going you know we can't we can't have the Pope come to Beijing and not put him in front of a hot mic at some point Mm -hmm. and we can't have the Pope going off script on (laughs) live on air we can't do that. so I mean it's an interesting thing to sort of have Francis show that it's not that he's so thoroughly western and he doesn't have a thought and a care for what goes on on you know over in that hemisphere clearly he does he's you know he's up in Mongolia right now and and I think as a provocation there you might be right that's a great way of sort of signaling you know I'm not going to just steer away from that whole part of the world um and if China wants to sort of try and isolate itself from the reality of papal diplomacy and the pope's sort of flying circus, then that's on them. Um, so no, that is interesting. I hadn't considered it that way.
0: I think it's at least worth seeing. I mean, I think, yeah, I think there is this peripheral thing, but I think for, in a certain way, like the Pope's Jesuit identity um, has him uh, uh, sort of, uh, the, the Jesuit orientation towards um, a mission to China is hardwired into the culture and then you know the the Pope's obviously you know own the the, the long standing history that you've just outlined. I do think um, may well be part of what's going on, and it'll be interesting to see. In addition to Seoul, if there are other, I mean, obviously, I don't think the Pope's going to Taiwan, and I don't think he's going to try to go to Hong Kong or Macau. Um, but it would be interesting to see. If he did try to go to other places bordering China, he's paid a great deal of attention to India. I mean, one of the things worth noting is the Pope has paid a great deal of attention to India. And I don't just mean the Sierra Malabar stuff. I mean, the Pope has made it a point to make Indian cardinals, and um, you cannot um, shower attention on India without Beijing taking notice either, can you?
1: uh no, you can't I mean, if you want to talk about global flashpoints the india china border is the scariest right. thing going yes. on
0: right now. I mean yes. it is
1: absolutely terrifying this is this is one of the um outside of our normal working bubble things that I was reading up on hard over my vacation um because China's actually engaged in a massive bunker building um, yeah. campaign along the indian border i don't if people don't know um China and India have been engaged in physical conflict along the chinese Indian border, much of which remains disputed and uh, depending on who you ask, either undefined, ill-defined or wrongly defined. And of course, the the, the sort of flashpoint for all this is water mm-hmm. um, because the Chinese have been sort of diverting and damming and um, trying to take water sources in, in the Himalayan mountains uh, to feed their massive growing... Industry as well as population, and the Indians are taking not too kindly to this. Um, but like the the clashes between the Indian army and the Chinese army are so frequent and have resulted in deaths along the border that you know it's it almost doesn't get reported uh, outside of regional news anymore. Yeah, and uh, I mean they're beating each other to death with clubs along the border. The soldiers of the two countries, um, and the reason they're beating each other to death with clubs is because. Both sides have sort of said, we don't need this escalating into a full-blown shooting, which would quickly become potentially nuclear Mm -hmm. war. So we're just not going to let our soldiers patrolling the border carry guns. Um, And we're really one bad-tempered sergeant major or one bring-your-guns-to-work day for either army away from a a cataclysmic possible armed conflict. So the Pope going to India as a way of nettling China, I think, could be very,
0: very effective if the Pope sort of – Absolutely. Yeah. If you wanted to get Beijing's that...
1: attention, go to Delhi. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, very honestly, <laughs> we have to acknowledge the fact that the the Pope has a, as an octogenarian has gone to one of the most right now polluted places in the world. Um, the air quality of Mongolia is very poor, uh, and uh, and so and of course the Pope has a lung and a half, and so um, <laughs> we have to recognize that. I was uh,
1: unaware that Mongolian air was of poor quality. This this defies my expectation. I would have assumed the land of the endless steppe was nothing but windswept and cold and bracing and clear.
0: Yeah, I I know um but uh but I'm wrong. I'm I'm not sure what to tell you except that I don't think that what I don't think that um I don't think that Mongolia is a country where um sort of environmental uh, manufacturing output standards are observed very carefully and I think the city Ulaanbaatar is in a bowl. Um I live in a city that's in a bowl and um the consequence of living in a bowl is that uh, smog sits directly over you, and I I suspect it's the same uh, for the microclimate of Ulongbatar. Anyway, uh, the point okay. is the Pope, as an octogenarian, you know this may well be. I think this could be said every time the Pope goes anywhere, but this is a big trip, um, and uh, and this may well be um, you know the last big trip of this magnitude that the Pope thinks he's really able to undertake.
1: Ah, uh, we'll see about that. I've I've given up um, thinking. Oh, well, Pope Francis couldn't possibly schedule himself another again. long overseas trip because then he goes and does something like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. I'm going to Mongolia. Yeah, that's so, right. So, uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he's probably not going to go to the Antarctic. <laughs> but, I mean, that's about as far as I'm willing to. I mean, he's probably not going to go to Australia because he doesn't seem to be able to find Australia on a map in the same way that he is able to for Mongolia for the purposes of visits or creating cardinals or the things like that. the appointment of
0: cardinals, I think that's certainly true. Um, So I'd go that far.
1: Um, I wouldn't rule out an eventual papal trip to Russia. Uh, Unlike the Chinese, the Russians do uh, tend to give in to diplomatic flattery.
0: There are a number of tricky things about that. There's There's the obvious diplomatic issue. Then there's the obvious, you know, namely just going to Putin's country and how the Ukrainians would react to that. And the fact that the Pope has had a very difficult time convincing Ukrainian Catholics that he has empathy for them um because he seems to keep saying things that suggest a sort of affinity for that he doesn't. Yeah, right. For saying he doesn't.
1: He has a difficult yeah. time persuading Ukrainian Catholics he has empathy for them because he seems to keep doing right. and so saying things that suggest that he doesn't have a great deal of the when empathy.
0: he told Russian young people that they should emulate the the uh the the sort of spirit of Peter the Great and Catherine the Second and um the the uh Ukrainians said whoa 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 uh, please don't encourage Russians towards empire building. And the Pope said, oh, you know, the Holy See said, oh, that's not what the Pope meant. But, you know, the Pope keeps having these troubles. So there's this sort of, um, there's that ecclesial problem. There is the, um, obvious sort of, you know, just broader sort of diplomatic issues of, uh, of uh, the Pope desiring to be an arbiter of the, um, Ukrainian Russian conflict. And so, um, the, the balance that would need to be struck and all that. But, um, there's another problem, another ecclesial problem, so if you think the ecclesial problem that the Pope has with going to Russia is how the Ukrainian Catholics might think of it, Ed, do you know, and this is like a bit of a fun little trivia game, I guess for nerds like us um and I know there are at least a few who are already shouting at their phones or whatever what what it is, but Ed, do you know what the other ecclesial problem the Pope would run into if he went to russia
1: well it would it would be very, very tricky. Uh, for him to meet with uh, what is, as far as the Patriarch of Constantinople, considers a schismatic
0: Orthodox Church. That. But I'm talking about a, a problem in his own orbit, a problem in his own backyard. Uh, the Russian Catholic Church. Oh, there is a Russian Catholic There church. is a Russian Catholic Suyuris Church. There is an Eastern Catholic Church, which is the Russian Catholic Church. It's very small. I, I, can't, I can't remember how many members it has now, but... They, they're numbered in the thousands. If there are 10,000 Russian Catholics, I'll be very surprised. Well, it's
1: not like Mongolian Catholic
0: Church small. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like Mongolian Catholic Church small. But the Mongolian Catholic Church – Mongolian Catholics are a part of the Latin church, right? But there is a Russian Catholic Sui Uris Church, um, an, an Eastern Catholic Church for Russian Catholics. But it doesn't have what, Ed? Do you know? Uh, it doesn't have – a It probably doesn't even have a bishop, I would imagine. It doesn't have a hierarchy. Yeah, Yeah. it doesn't have a bishop. And it would like a bishop, but it's a little bit tricky for the pope to appoint um, uh, uh, um, a major archbishop or, for God's sake, a patriarch or any head of the Russian Catholic Church, because it poses an ecumenical problem for him, the Russian Orthodox would argue, of course, that there is already a patriarch of Moscow. And so for him to appoint a patriarch of Moscow would be seen as an extraordinary insult to them. The Russian Orthodox don't like the Russian Catholics because they regard them as effectively a, a schismatic sect or heretical sect. And so uh, to give them a hierarchy has long been regarded as uh, an, an ecumenical faux pas. And so they've had these administrators, these, you know, just a series of guys who are sort of caretakers for this thing. But it might be a little bit tricky. Uh, for the Pope to go there and meet with both the Catholics of the Russian Catholic Church and the hierarchy of the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church at the same time.
1: No? I don't know, JD. I mean, isn't this true of every sort of Eastern Catholic Church that has a a parallel or an analog Orthodox
0: Church? This is true of the Greek Catholic Church. This is true of... Yeah, but this one is awkward because they want a hierarchy. They want bishops... They want their own bishops, and um, they don't have one, and it's been a point of some degree of contention. Right, but
1: not a massive degree of contention because well, there are not only many
0: because there are very few of them. But I mean, the, my, my point is, I think Pope Francis eyes.
1: is. Uh, I have every faith in Pope Francis's personal ability to ignore the Russian Catholics <laughs> in Russia, as he as the Vatican has been scrupulously ignoring their calls for a hierarchy from Rome. Um, that is not going to be something which is going to stop him from going to Moscow. If he is given the opportunity, I, I make no doubt. Um, if for no other reason, then the Holy father has been very clear that sometimes entire Catholic, entire swathes of Catholics, entire countries of Catholics sometimes, um, get riled up by things he says. To them or about them.
0: Well, that's and, what um, you know. It's funny they make that transition these, these things. That's what we meant to talk about. We meant to talk about some controversial remarks about because if this is his last major trip, he's already on the airplane and he's only gone the done the out trip, not yet the return trip. He's already made some headlines, so we will talk about that after this word from our sponsor. And this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by our friends at Decided Excellence Catholic Media. Decided Excellence Catholic Media is a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines. There are parishes and all over the country that have partnered with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to publish their own parish magazines. And why? Because parishioners love them. The magazines communicate the good works of the parish, they strengthen community, and they've even brought parishioners back to mass.
1: That's right. And so what does a parish magazine offer that a weekly bulletin or you know just the social media presence of a parish Facebook page or whatever else can't do? Well. A mail magazine can hit 100% of the parishioners in a parish, both your mailing list and also the people who live within the territory of the parish, that you don't need to wait for someone to log on to or follow you on social media or hope that they'll turn up to mass and remember to take one as they're leaving the church. That you know This can be an, a way of active outreach and a way of reaching people in their homes that you can take the first step. Up. And, you know, you don't have to worry about getting lost in a social media algorithm. You don't have to try and shrink what it is you want to say to people to fit on the back of, you know, a, a Twitter character count or anything like that. That you can actually communicate the fullness of the message that you want your parish to give and reflect the fullness of the
0: life going on in the parish. That's right, because each magazine features a family from the parish, and it can also highlight parish ministries. The parish can produce its own evangelization and catechesis content, and then it can supplement that with the broad Decided Excellence Catholic Media Library with articles from Bishop Robert Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio, and many others. And then the cool thing is you can kind of put together this content at your parish, and they help you out with that. And then they have an editorial and design team to sort of get you through the publication process each month. So it's a hand-in-glove relationship between parish and Decided Excellence Catholic Media, which helps to create a professional and attractive print magazine with the help of a trained parish representative. Decided Excellence trains a parish representative to organize content, which is sent to a staff of professional designers and editors. And that way you can ensure that the magazine that your parish produces is both beautiful and high in quality.
1: Yeah. And if you would like to take a look, see if this is right for you in your parish. You can go to decidedexcellence.com slash parish to learn more. You can talk to your priest, your parish staff, your fellow parishioners about bringing a parish magazine to your parish today. And I mean, look, I make my living doing online media, but I love physical media. It, there's something nice about it. There's something reassuring about it. There's
0: something real about it. Yeah, so check it out at decidedexcellence.com slash parish. That's decidedexcellence.com slash parish to learn more. All right, Ed, we are back, and uh, we are, uh, as ever, halfway through this show, a little more than halfway through the show, and we haven't started talking about the thing that we wanted to talk about first, but that's okay. Let's get to it now. If this is the Pope's last trip, he has certainly uh, made headlines already, um, connected to some comments that the Pope made when he was on his last trip. So the Pope was in Portugal last month for uh, World Youth Day, World Juventude uh, Day, as you might say if you were combining languages there. Um, the uh, The Pope was in... <laughs> In, in Portugal for World Youth Day, one of the biggest World Youth Days in recent memory, and many people went and had an edifying experience, and we've talked about that already. But um, the Pope did something, which he often does. He met with the Jesuits in Portugal and sort of had this Q&A uh, that was recorded, and subsequently a transcript was published in La Chivalta Cattolica, which is this kind of Jesuit-owned, semi-official vatican kind of journal so the holy see has to approve what goes into it it's like it's a sort of holy see state owned magazine state run state overseen magazine it's the cns of the holy see in magazine form is that fair um kind of ish i mean it's weird it's its own thing it's sui generous it's sui generous it's its own thing it's entirely jesuit
1: it's it's also under the vatican it's i mean look the most the reason most people know about civita Catholica* in the church is because when pope francis is something controversial or um perhaps a little a little mean-spirited maybe from time to time often about americans it's that's where it gets published um and it would be fair to say i think that it's editorial team uh Have a view. Have a view of the world. They have a view of politics. They have a view of theology and ecclesiology. Yeah, and
0: and like I said, the 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 forum is not important. Um, What's important is that when the pope goes on trips these days, he has these meetings with Jesuits, and then he publishes a sort of transcript thereof. And um, when the pope was in Portugal, he was asked a question about the church in the United States, and Uh, The Pope offered some comments, which were released last week, in which he said that there's a problem in the Church in the United States with ideology and a kind of looking backwards, and many Catholics who have replaced the faith with ideology. It was an interesting kind of remark because um, uh, the Pope was asked about bishops in the United States, and then he sort of criticized American Catholics for being ideologues. And that made headlines. We're going to talk about that, but I want to tell you the whole story first. That made headlines. And there's been great much of um, commentating thereabout um, and sort of uh, raising criticisms or raising objections or responding to what the Pope had to say, which I'll just read you. The Pope said that there's a climate of closure in the United States, a kind of going backwards Um and uh, um, that uh, there's a very strong reactionary attitude in the u.s which is organized and shapes the way people belong even emotionally presumably to the church Uh, the ecclesial situation he said is not easy so that's what the pope said it came out last week people have commented and responded and reacted and we'll do a little bit of conversation about that but then he was asked about it uh, on the plane ride to mongolia and uh, Ed, did you happen to see what the Pope said uh, on the plane ride to Mongolia about this?
1: You know, I did. And the only reason I did see it is because um, Luke Coppens back from vacation thankfully and so we know and you read it in
0: starting seven which in is our daily news roundup Which you can subscribe to a dot slash subscribe uh it's an it's something that we offer to our paying subscribers so if you want to keep up to date every day with the daily news roundup that tells you everything there is to know about the news in the church you can get that at starting seven commercial over ed did you happen to see what the pope said
1: i did i didn't intend that to be a commercial for starting seven either i just wanted to you know Give credit where it was due. That The only reason I knew about this. What did
0: he say? we got to stay on track here. What did the Pope say? Okay,
1: okay. He said, um, they, presumably meaning Americans, got angry, but let's move on.
0: Yes, they got angry, but let's move on. The tenor of which has been taken as um, uh, American Catholics have been told to move on by the Pope, which I think for those who were hurt, angry, frustrated, or um, exasperated by what the Pope said, sort of uh, move on, did not get... Um, uh, did not really um, resonate with them or mollify them or assuage their concerns. I, um, we haven't talked about this at all, Ed, but what, what do you think about what the, I mean, very honestly, I mean, what do you think about what the Pope said about this climate of closure and the difficult ecclesial situation in the US and all that? I have my own views, but I'm curious to hear yours. Okay, so here's what I really think
1: about all this. And, um, you know, sort of stepping aside from the the weird sort of, Fever swamp of weird Catholic blogosphere, YouTubery, and Twitter, where there's a sort of small clutch of, you know, swivel eyed and spittle flecked lunatics who make their entire living either demonizing or radically amplifying everything the Pope says or they think he says and all that sort of stuff. I mean, those people are just, they're not well, and so I don't tend to give them much time of day. But what you can say about Pope Francis is he is a man of his time and place. And he doesn't like Americans. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the flavor he tends to criticize and the, the sort of, you know, cartoon image he tends to buy into and promote is he doesn't like trads and conservatives. But, I mean, the reality is his, he's an Argentine of his generation and he just doesn't like Americans.
0: With a particular history and a particular set of experiences about what the United States is and what it's role. Sure. You know, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying it's. But I, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right about that. I think the Pope has demonstrated that, and that is what it is. I think um, I find it I think odd, you're right. though.
1: I, I, this is the thing that I find curious, and I think it will be one of the defining characteristics of the Francis pontificate. I don't think it'll be sort of his, I hope it won't be part of his legacy in, in office, and I hope it won't be sort of, you know, something that shapes how the Petrine office is exercised in the future. But I do think history will look back and say one of the, one of the distinguishing features of the francis pontificate is he he's more willing to be i don't know how to put this a jerk about people than any of his predecessors and i think this is something that you see a lot of in the last 13 years is um you never saw any pope i can think of in in memory and not just living memory i mean i i i you know i read quite a lot of papal allocutions and public addresses and stuff from popes that predate even my own time in life and I struggle to think of a Pope who in the past has been sort of more offhandedly just catty about people and seems prepared to just sort of be like, yeah, I don't like those people. So what? And I mean, again, he's the, he's the Pope. He's not Christ. You, do, you, know, you don't expect him to have a sort of seraphic perfect love for all people in all places at all times. And you know, he's welcome to have his, his personal likes and dislikes. But yeah. I can't ever remember a Pope Sort of wearing those personal prejudices quite so openly
0: and quite so defined. Magnanimity, magnanimity. The Pope has probably many virtues, but magnanimity towards those to whom he has a sort of visceral uh, discomfort is not one of them. It does. It seems he's not shy about um, emphasizing his frustration. And look, I think that listeners of this show know that we like to, um, to approach these things in a balanced way, and we like to talk about the Pope uh, with an appropriate sense of filial piety. But I think it's fair to say, as you're saying, that the Pope is sort of um, willing to be very clear about his sort of um, perspectives on these things. With all of that said, I don't think the Pope is exactly wrong, um, in that, I think there are a lot of ideologues in the church in the United States, or there are prominent ideologues in the church in the United oh, States. I think that sure you can I, find it, don't them. Don't get me wrong; um, there's to the plenty left to the right. criticize,
1: but it, but this is exactly my point: is how the Pope speaks about these things and how the Pope sort of chooses his targets or lets just you know makes the decision. to say, no, I'm going to let I'm going to let myself hang out here. I think that's the interesting thing. I mean, don't get me wrong; there are head cases in the U.S. church. There are people who mm-hmm. are a serious problem. I mean, it is
0: you know, Archbishop Vigano is... They're the ones the Pope recognizes. There are, um, there are, you know, um, gosh, we're going to get so much mail about this, but there are people in the trad universe who are unquestionably and obviously ideologues. And there are people in the um, heterodox left universe who are unquestionably and obviously ideologues who put a set of, you know, personal political philosophies or theologies ahead of the teaching of the church. That should be obvious to anyone who pays attention to the life of the church. So, but the, but the manner of approaching it is interesting because you're right, there's not a directness, a candor, or um, a clarity, let alone a sort of invitation to renewal or reform or something like no, that. No, uh,
1: but, uh, but the other thing is, again, it's informed by the Pope's personal likes and dislikes. Is the Are the fringe elements, which are very real and very distasteful in the U.S. Church, a more obvious or manifest threat to the communion of the Catholic Church Than, for example, the Bishops' Conference of Germany? No, of course not. And no one, either in the United States or in the Holy See, disputes that. But the Pope doesn't talk about how, you know, well, the problem with those Germans is, you know, because he doesn't dislike Germans particularly. And he does happen to culturally just dislike Americans, I think. And you know, again, I, I don't. I'm not saying the Pope needs to do better. I mean, he's you know, he's a guy. He's a he's allowed to have people he likes and people he doesn't yeah. like in countries he likes and countries that rub him the wrong way. That's cool. I do think it's just it is an interesting novelty we are living through having a Pope who's willing to just sort of be that way in public. And you know, when called on it, I mean, this is the other thing is it's kind of this. um you know, you mentioned that these comments came, you know, they were published in Chivica cataldica but they came as sort of, you know, he always does as part of his trips. So he meets with the local Jesuits and he has this sort of, you know, candid back and forth with them that's, you know, kind of, oh, this is just a private informal conversation amongst those Jesuits, except somebody's here recording it and they're going to
0: publish the whole thing in three weeks. And they're going to publish it. And I'm aware of that because that's what we do. And I obviously. Yeah. Do. And it's, you know, it- now I have been in situations where you go somewhere and you're invited to give a talk and then you find out afterwards that there was a tape running, and they're like, oh, we're just going to put this on YouTube. And you're like, whoa, whoa. Uh, I gave this talk to this audience. If I would known it was going to be on YouTube, I would have given a different audience, or charged more because I can't go somewhere else and say the exact same thing to a different set of people. But the Pope is not in that situation because this is his ha- habit with Jesuits. This is his habit with Jesuits. Um, but it, uh, I mean, it seems to me that these
1: little informal, not formal, not on the record, but clearly on the record for publication later chats with local Jesuits, I mean, he often seems to go after people or at least be really unguarded with who he doesn't like or the kinds of people he doesn't like. Like, there was one in, I think, was he in Spain? And, you know, he went off about the kinds of confessors he really doesn't like or the kind of careerist clerics he really doesn't like and, you know, allegedly used some pretty descriptive terminology. Um, He seems to be very comfortable letting his personal dislikes be known that way. And I mean, again, I don't, you know, I have a lot of personal dislikes and I'm often uh, perfectly comfortable sharing them with people. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes I enjoy doing so. So I I don't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't upset me. It doesn't particularly scandalize me, I guess, that the Pope would think and feel the same way. Um, And it's his choice to act that way. But I guess what's interesting for me is, and I say this as someone who I guess most people would call a conservative, I would dispute that label and the appropriateness of it. I'm certainly, but no one's definition of a trad.
0: Oh, for God's sake, Ed, if you see someone wearing brown shoes and a Navy suit, you freak out. Yes. You're a conservative, Uh, not brown, uh, tan,
1: tan shoes and a Navy suit. (laughs) It's wrong. It's just wrong. Um, (laughs) fine, Uh, but I'm no one's definition of a trad. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not liturgically
0: traditional in any way or anything like that. But you know, I am an American. I, can, I will say that if you see someone wearing brown shoes and a navy suit without a mantilla, you also freak out.
1: <laughs> what? what?
0: Um, I'm just. I,
1: I guess the 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 real novelty, the uncomfortable novelty that I'm still getting used to, you know, however many, more than a decade into Francis Pontificate now, is this is the first time I can ever remember having a Pope, and admittedly I only had JP2 and Benedict go on before this, who I genuinely felt the Pope doesn't know me and the Pope doesn't like me. You know, yeah. I like I, I think Benedict I never met Pope Benedict. Um, you know, I was in the same room as him once, um, as I've told the story before, and I always felt that he loved me that this you know this pope had a genuine paternal love for me as a catholic and me in my particular circumstances and i felt the same thing about jb2 pope francis you know i i get the sense that if he you know he he doesn't know who i am and if he did he he really doesn't like me very much and it's weird to feel like the holy father doesn't like you um i mean it doesn't it's not an impediment to my faith it doesn't prevent me from giving the Pope all of the all of the respect and um obedience that his office commands and that, you know, the the see of Peter, you know, deserves and everything like that. So it's, you know, it doesn't doesn't impede me in the practice of my faith. Um, but it is a novel experience and it's slightly uncomfortable at times to just kind of feel like, oh yeah, he he just doesn't like me and he doesn't like people like me, and that's weird.
0: I'll tell you the truth. Um I have long assumed that the pope would like me if only he got to know me because that's my assumption about my relationship with every human person it is impossible for me to imagine that someone spent 45 minutes with me and not come away uh, terrific i know and, and as i've, and I've said before
1: your time. your constant good faith expectation that if you if you grin hard enough into the face of whoever's yelling at you <laughs> they will somehow come away convinced never ceases to delight me in its futility <laughs>
0: <laughs> but let me talk more seriously about this. Um, I have been thinking about the Pope's remarks about the crisis of closure or the culture of closure, whatever it is in the United States, and this indentritism of looking backwards and all of these things, um, which are, as you say, a kind of an elbow, a kind of a side swipe at a, a, a particular audience that he might have in mind in the United States, which I think we would all say is probably the trad sort of universe. There are two things which occur to me. The first is that um it's just not a sign of a healthy organization to have sort of correction by passive aggression or, or correction by ambiguity. Um, the Pope is the head of the church on earth. Uh, he is the universal ordinary of the church. Uh, he has the authority that he has and um, ought to be respected for that and regarded with filial piety. Um, and as you say, he can do what he likes, but one creates healthy cultures by being candid. If one thinks that one is in need of correction, one subordinate or child, maybe is a better way to think about it, a person with whom one has a paternal relationship is in need of correction, one creates a healthy culture by candid correction. Uh, I will create in my children an extraordinary amount of anxiety if I kind of toss into the ether unspecified criticisms of my children kind of disappointing me or some of my children have an attitude problem. And, and I say that kind of thing without coming to the child who has an attitude problem and saying, hey, you've got an attitude problem. I'll create in all of my children this kind of anxiety, this kind of sense that dad doesn't like me, which you are expressing, and um, and probably a kind of resentment among a broader swath of them than the one who has the attitude problem. Um, if, if we ran our business this way, we have employees, and if we ran our business by periodically releasing sort of transcripts of texts between us in which I said, boy, some of our employees are real lazy. And you wrote back, you know, and how one, we wouldn't get affect the result, which we desire to see that some of our employees become more industrious, but two, we would affect a resentment towards us among all of our employees and a distrust towards us and a culture of uncertainty um, and kind of the kind of ambiguity that breeds anxiety and ultimately disaffection. So, um, just sort of from the perspective of culture building this kind of management by penumbra seems to me to be unhealthy and again the Pope can do what he likes but I it just does not strike me as being a particularly sort of paternal mode of engagement um, or correction or a particularly scriptural one that's one two I am struck by the juxtaposition of the Pope's approach to an American correction one which I think, Correction is sorely needed for many parts of the American Catholic Church. I want to be absolutely clear about that. I think correction is needed for many parts of the American Catholic Church, and I think some of the parts of the American Catholic Church, which the Pope suggests need correction, do need correction. There are real issues in the in traditionalist communities in the life of the Church, and there are real issues of ideological closure and all of these things in, in um sort of progressive corners of the church etc we we could talk about that to our hearts content i i just don't want to seem to be sweeping that under the rug but i'm struck by the the juxtaposition of the pope's side-eye criticism of american catholicism unspecified undirected criticism of american catholicism a kind of condemnation by penumbra with the direction in which he has said he would like to take the dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, once the Holy Office of the Grand Inquisition. Um, while once the Holy Office was meant to identify theological problems and correct them, the Holy Father says that the new direction of the DDF is to be accompaniment, to recognize that some people's theological ruminations are outside the bounds of orthodoxy, and to engage them fraternally and charitably, with this disposition of humility and a spirit of accompaniment in order to bring them to uh, over uh, you know a, a, a through by means of a fraternal engagement um, towards the truth. The Pope wants a kinder, gentler DDF. He has been very clear about that. but that does not seem in any way to have been his approach to this ideological culture which he sees as being problematic in the United States because even there, you know whether you think that's a good idea or not, that kind of fraternal engagement begins with a kind of solicitude, a kind of finding common ground, a kind of affirmation of one's dignity, and then we move forward to address the problems, and we sort of do that in a spirit of synodality and friendship. But this is not that. This is just saying, oh yeah, there's a really problematic ecclesial culture over there. Some of those guys aren't very good, and you can probably guess the ones that I mean. And um, I, it it seems to me that the Pope probably has competing desires. On the one hand, a frustration with what he's informed about the American Church, or what he perceives to be the reality of the American Church. Hell, Ed, maybe a frustration with us and our reporting about the various canonical problems with his, um, with uh, with the directives of some of his uh, subordinates into castries, um, and maybe a perception that I've often wondered if the Holy See perceives that when we raise issues about sort of canonical procedures, if they think we're. Um, that that's a beard for us of our sort of true visceral resentment of the thing that they're doing, that we don't actually care about procedural law or or public accountability. You don't really wonder that. No, I've often wondered for real if the Holy See thinks that we that we don't actually care about Oh, I don't wonder the, that. They absolutely don't. They absolutely think that we don't care.
1: Well, they're wrong. Of course, because they're, they're wrong. Care. But you, uh, if 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 you don't know that for sure, then I've done a poor job of communicating to you. The universal feedback I get <laughs> from everybody I know who works in the Holy See is, "Oh yeah, they think you guys are a pair of jerkish American conservatives who just hate the church and hate the Pope." And you know.
0: sure, but do they think we're being wonky? Like, do they think we don't actually care about procedural law? We're just using it as a cudgel, or do they think that we? Like, I often wonder if they know that we actually deeply care that prescribed procedures are followed and observed. Do
1: you want to know my honest opinion? Ah, sure. My honest opinion is that most of the people who make such a bad faith criticism of us from within the Holy See themselves have so little an understanding of procedural law that they don't understand we're actually being wonky and have a point.
0: I think that's probably right. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, okay. All right. Um... The point that I'm trying to make is that there's a um there's a discordance it seems to me between the way the pope is talking about problems he perceives in the United States and the way that he says he wants to address issues with a kinder gentler friendlier DDF. And I think the pope has competing desires there. He wants to be the guy who does things in a kinder gentler way, but he's also ticked at what he's told what he perceives is the milieu of the American church and he sort of lashes out at that. And there's, uh, that's unfortunate because I do think it breeds that kind of resentment or, uh, or discordance or disconnect that I mentioned.
1: May I offer a hypothesis in response to the point that you've just made? Of course. Um, you're treating this as discordant or mutually conflictual alternative actions by the Pope for his own purposes. I would submit that actually... One is the one is the pontificate of Francis that Francis himself wishes to see, that you know the 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 Pope he wants to be in the world is the one who wants a kinder gentler DDF and all this sort of stuff, and I mean the office of the successor of Peter is a huge is a crushing weight and different people bear it in different ways and people deal with it in different ways and we've talked about this sometimes on the show in the past and we've talked about how Benedict seemed to sort of consciously. Erase himself into the role that you know. His he brought back a lot of the sort of um, the uniform, the the symbolism, the the heraldry of the papal office as a way of sort of saying Joseph Ratzinger doesn't live here anymore. There's only Benedict, and I have to be this sort of um, institutional face. And, and speak only as the Pope and be very careful about what I say and how I say it and everything. And JP too had this very personal way that where you know the sort of the man of Carol Voitia, the personality of Carol Voitia seemed at times to sort of overspill the pounds of the Pope. and you know he was such a global figure that you know in many ways he, he fulfilled a role on the world stage and in late 20th century um, geopolitics and culture that was that was beyond the Catholic Church. Um, and I think for Pope Francis, sometimes he's being very conscious about how he wants to speak um, and how he wants to be the And sometimes he's just like, you know what? I'm just fed up with those people over there and I don't like them very much. And he's not speaking, or at least I don't, my sense is that he's not trying to speak as the Pope and say, and therefore I want you to all interpret from this. This is how I, you know, I, I want you to take something away from this as me, Francis, um, Bishop of Rome, successor of Peter. But sometimes it's just like, you know he's just the guy saying yeah. you know I you know, you know we're all sitting, this, and I know the tape recorder's running, and I know this is going to be in a magazine next week, but I'm not really thinking about that. This is when I you know sort of blow off steam with the Jesuits after a big public event, and I haven't sat down in three days and I've shaken hands with fifty three million people and you know, and honestly, yeah, I'm just sick of those cranks over there, and I don't like' them very much, and you know it's these sort of unguarded comments which you know again, other popes I'm sure made in in their private just, they just didn't structure their their lives in such a way that their sort of you know inner circle
0: informal moments were also being recorded for publication well, that's in a the Jesuit thing. When I get together and complain about my kids when I'm with hanging out with other dads and I complain about my kids, I don't have those words transcribed and then sent to my kids. Yeah. But you know if I did I'd be, you know, I, not very charitable.
1: That's true. That's true. And I mean, again, I like I said, I how this affects me, Al Franken, is that I feel like the Pope doesn't like me. And that that kind of, you know, it's a novelty and it kind of sucks, but I mean, it doesn't impede my faith. It doesn't impede my practice of the faith. It doesn't stop me, nor mine. Treating Francis but I, as the Pope. I
0: suspect that it's possible that for some it does. I mean, that's- that, That's entirely possible. I could be wrong, but I suspect that it's
1: possible that for some it does. It, and, and what I was going to say is, and you know, Francis bears his share of the responsibility for all of that. Um, you know, that is a consequence of his reaction. On the other hand, I also think he is surrounded by a bunch of guys who take advantage of him, and who, you know, genuinely sort of, you know, wind him up. It's just like, you know, you hate those guys, don't you? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to yeah. I you That's great for circulation. It's great for my blog. I think
0: that if it were – I think that if it were um, – the difference is with the legitimate stuff is that it goes through levels of approval before it is published. Yeah. It's not just having been wound up. It's having approved the signing off of the thing. Right. It's not – It. It. you can't possibly argue that it's just an ill-considered moment of blowing off steam. Oh, no, no,
1: no, context. no. I think the people around him who are positive, they, they want this stuff. They want a nastier tone out there. And the difference is Joaquin Navarro-Valls would have, you know, swallowed glass before he would have had JP2 quoted as saying, oh, you know, those Germans, every single one of them is basically just, you know – they're all they're all either nazis or communists and i can't stand any of them you know or whatever it is he might have said in a moment of high exasperation with you know but there's no way that that would have you know they would have let that get out much less said oh this is this is good copy i mean that is that is part of you know some strata of the vatican's communication strategy right now and i find it very very bizarre and um and counterintuitive and it feeds a sort of climate of nastiness around the conversation about Pope Francis, which is why you get the sort of perennially online, you know, lunatic, you know, anti-Francis, pro-Francis, all this stuff, you know, that it feeds that sort of toxic subculture. Um, I mm-hmm. think very consciously.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think we'll continue obviously talking about this as well. Uh, I've got a, run because you're back from vacation and I'm going camping. Um, But um, there's much more of this to talk about and I don't think it's, I don't think it's going away. No, probably not. Where are you going camping? Well, that's for me to know, buddy. Oh, (laughs) it's one thing, you know, it's one thing to be kind of coy about where your lake house is or whatever, but like when you're camping, there's just, there's nothing between you and the world, but a thin sheet of nylon. And if you think I'm going to sort of just advertise on this show where me, my children, and that thin sheet of nylon are you're nuts, fair enough. I mean, you I, okay? Um, suffice it to say, the Rocky Mountains, all right. Well, enjoy that, <laughs> okay? Bye. The Pillar Podcast production of Production Pillar Media and NCD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon, and we will be back next week as ever.